say the term mindfulness, what comes into your mind? Is it someone sitting cross-legged, they're quiet, they're still, maybe they're meditating on a special cushion? What about the term self-compassion? Does the word weak or giving up come to mind? Over the years of supporting clients have a more peaceful and healthy relationship to food in their body, particular skills and their value have stood out to me, as does their absence. So for instance, diet culture has taught us that we are always the core problem when a diet fails. Diet culture says we failed, not the diet failed us, you know, as its whole trying to work against our strong protective biology. Diet culture says you are greedy when you eat a food that's deemed so-called bad or when you eat past fullness. We've become so well-trained at berating ourselves and not even noticing that that's what we're doing. You know, ordering takeaway for dinner after a really long and stressful day comes with this almost obligatory and not even skip a beat, you suck at life thing. So as we start to now take a step back, as I hope that this podcast is helping you to take a step back from diet culture, maybe this is now where you're at and you're seeing more of what I'm describing now and in previous episodes. So you're seeing the failure rate of dieting, the power of your own biology, the complex story that is weight and health and all of the oppressive structures that influence this. So now we can start to employ new strategies to break free from dieting. We can become really clear on our patterns, our thoughts, and our beliefs around food and our body. We can catch ourselves in those moments. We can choose an alternate path. We can be fully present and tuned in to our body's needs. This is mindfulness. And when things feel sticky, when we're frustrated with our own progress or feelings, when you have a shitty day, you can be gentle and you can be kind with yourself. You can do for yourself in those tough moments what a loved one would do for you. This is self-compassion. And together, these skills to practice become like superpowers, especially when we're talking about breaking free from dieting. And they are indeed skills. You don't just get them. And there's also no such thing as perfect at them. So in this episode, I'll be exploring two fundamental skills to help you break free from dieting, mindfulness and self-compassion, where to begin, how to practice, and also how to make it stick. I have the pleasure in this episode of speaking with licensed psychologist and certified eating disorder specialist, Alexis Connison, to explore the topic. Her new book, The Diet-Free Revolution, is available now and is a 10-step approach to ditching diet culture, healing your relationship with food, and learning to love your body. The skills of mindfulness and self-compassion are in fact two steps of the 10-step approach in Alexis's book and are really well covered in the context of breaking free from dieting. For many clients, the idea of trusting their bodies when I first meet them is unimaginable, and that's so understandable. Diet culture in its many forms has created a strong narrative that we must ignore our body's needs like hunger and pleasure in order to eat as little as possible and only of some foods at set times and in particular ways. The lists of how we are meant to eat are endless. You know, we crave direction on portions, how much to eat, which foods are apparently best to eat, 
what you're meant to eat when you want sugar because, you know, you couldn't possibly eat sugar. It's an epidemic of disconnection. And those external cues like eating lunch because it's midday or ordering a salad because your meal plan says so are diet culture and are also entirely unreliable. No meal plan or clock knows your body. Only you do. So it's our job as we break up with diet culture to become more aware, more connected and more trusting over time, over time. And mindfulness is an incredibly powerful skill to utilize here in order to increase our awareness and change what no longer serves us. You know, just like eating lunch because it's midday and having little to no idea what our body is actually saying. I asked Alexis why mindfulness is the first step to changing unwanted patterns and behaviors that we have in life. And also what happens in the brain when we practice it. The way that I see it is that mindfulness sets the foundation for any of the changes that we want to make in our life. So mindfulness, which is really just about becoming aware and present in the current moment, allows us to see our see our mind in a different way and you know, as a consequence, we're we're able to respond to our thoughts differently. Mm-hmm. And in that space between being able to observe our thoughts and make conscious choices about how we respond to them, you know, I, I think that's where change occurs. Mm-hmm. It's in that space there. So, you know, we we talk a lot about in, in the anti-diet movement about the idea of just that like diets don't work and diets are really harmful and Sometimes if people are just getting their education from like social media and these little bits and pieces, they feel really lost because they're like, okay, what I'm doing doesn't work, but then what, then what do we do? And it's really scary to move away from dieting and move away from this framework that we've kind of been taught is the, is the solution. So, you know, I think that mindfulness is, is that, um, you know, that, that bridge that can help bring us from diet mentality and diet culture to start to observe diet mentality and diet culture, not as the solution, but actually as the problem. Mm -hmm. And then also be able to tune in in a different way to what our body is telling us to this, what I call um, our internal navigate, you know, our internal GPS, like our internal navigation system that, that, that is the roadmap to how to heal our relationship with food. Awesome. So I think it's that piece that's that, that mindfulness piece that lets us hear and respond differently. If you're interested in the um, kind of the bringing research, there's some fascinating work that's out there that's been done looking at uh, meditators and, you know, it's not only looking at the research isn't only looking at people who have extensive meditation, you know, practice. It's not just monks and people who have dedicated like their life to meditation, but even looking at people who just go through a very basic eight week mindfulness mm-hmm. program, like the mindfulness based stress reduction programs. And um, when you look at compare MRI, you know, brain scans from MRI machines, we actually see changes in the brain that occur as people are learning to meditate. So it quite literally changes the neural pathways in our brain, which is incredible. That's very um, cool. <laughs> yeah. One of the analogies that I heard that I really liked was is to imagine kind of like a, um, 
a pile of sand and you have a marble and you take a marble and uh, you put it down the pile of sand and it leaves a track. And over time, if that marble keeps going down the same track, the track gets really well worn. And without thinking about it, just kind of habitually, the marble will keep rolling down that same track. Um, and with mindfulness, we give, you know, we kind of intentionally set that marble on a different path. So we, you know, steer it in a different way. And over time, that can become routine. So, you know, the act of mindfulness even can become more habitual, the act of being present, of responding to our thoughts um, differently, not, you know, um, reacting uh, to things. In her book, Alexis writes, and I quote, think of meditation as strength training for your brain. You know, years ago, my psychologist at the time employed a similar analogy with me. And as someone who's always physically trained, this was actually really helpful. And even if that's not your experience, the analogy may be helpful all the same, because it's one that helps us to realize what we're maybe really expecting. So for instance, are we expecting that thought patterns that we have and that we want to change will just change because we desire it? rather than from a consistent applied practice, just like anything that we're working on in life. I hope that this concept of training helps you in your own practice of mindfulness. So where do we begin with a mindfulness practice and are there steps to follow? So the most basic mindfulness practice uh, that I usually encourage people to start with is a mindfulness of breath. And, you know, I'll, I'll, a note of caution is that mindfulness has, has become very popular, has been used in a lot of different ways. And not everything that's called mindfulness meditation, you know, really seems to be about in the spirit of mindfulness. So when you're looking for a mindfulness meditation, it really should be something that's about becoming more present and aware of what's happening in the current moment. So guided, you know, kind of visualizations where you go off and, you know, imagine yourself relaxing at a beach or something like that are very nice and pleasant, but that's not really mindfulness because mindfulness is about being fully present right now, right where you are in that moment. So um, I usually encourage people to start with a meditation of breath, uh, just focusing on your breathing and you know, our breath is constantly changing. It's constantly entering and exiting our body and going back out into the world. And um, when we can just bring our awareness to this simple act that we are all engaging in all the time, usually outside of our awareness, that's a great place to start. And honoring the obstacles that I know I faced in developing a mindfulness practice, they're also the same ones I tend to hear from clients. I asked Alexis to share about how we move beyond them. So the first obstacle is overcoming the idea that meditating is about having no thoughts. I'll add also that I think we can get a little bit misled when people start meditating because we think that, you know, as quote unquote successful meditation practice is just about being fully present and clearing our mind and being able to focus completely on our breath. And um, that's, that's not actually what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is really about just noticing where your mind goes and harnessing your awareness on your breath. So in a meditation practice, even a very brief practice, you might find that you're focusing on the breath for one or two breaths. And then all of a sudden you're thinking about that movie that you saw yesterday, you're, you're thinking about an argument that you had with with your spouse or something you have to do for work. And that is completely natural. It doesn't mean that you're not meditating correctly when your mind wanders off. It's simply about observing, oh, 
my mind got lost in thought right there or, or, oh, I'm, you know, feeling anxious and worried right now. And then gently and lovingly bringing your awareness back to your breath. But it's that process when we notice what our mind has done, that's the moment of mindfulness. That's where we mm-hmm. can observe in this moment, you know, uh, what is going on with our mind, because really like even the mindfulness of breath practice isn't about observing the breath. It's much more about observing our mind. The next obstacle that Alexis offered is moving beyond when you say have tried mindfulness, maybe you felt it was frustrating, goodness I remember that, and you've said, you know, this this whole thing, this isn't for me. So, you know, I think holding in mind that there's really no wrong way to meditate, it's it's a lot of the times when people feel, I've tried meditation, I'm no good at it, it's not for me, I can't do it. Um, first of all, a lot of the times that's connected to people holding that belief that meditation is about clearing their mind and people tend to think, oh, you know, I'm not good at it because my mind wandered off. I can't keep my mind focused. So even just giving permission that of course your mind is going to focus. That's what the mind does. You're a human, you're alive. That's a good thing that your mind is active and busy, um, you know, to give permission to allow the mind to wander off, but to, you know, just observe practice observing and then gently bringing it back to focus on the breath that can be very freeing just to you know know that it's just about the process of observation no matter what happens in in a meditation practice there's no right or wrong it's just about observing the experiences that you go through and lastly i asked alexis how do we support a practice of mindfulness to stick in our lives it's a fine line because when we try to force ourselves into doing something that we don't want to do, we tend to, you know, rebel. We all know that. Um, But at the same time, sometimes we do need some support in developing a regular meditation practice. So some of the things that I have found the most helpful um, in my work is, and and the research supports this as well, just kind of generally about like how to develop a habit um, to try to have consistency if possible. So trying to start with something that's doable. Um, You know, I encourage people to start with either three minutes a day or five minutes a day, whichever feels more manageable to you. But, um, you know, I think that we sometimes get stuck in this like idealistic vision of like, I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes every day. And it's going to be in this like special meditation room that I'm going to create. I'm going to buy this like meditation cushion and I'm going to have a whole, you know, altar set up. And it's, you know, we get lost in perfection and it becomes overwhelming because what happens when it's time to meditate and you're not in your special place with your special cushion. And then you're like, okay, I'll do it later. And then we often never get around to it. So I think that, you know, I'd much rather see people start off with the intention of meditating three minutes a day or five minutes a day at a place that they think will work for them. Um, and, And it could be, like, you know, I, I, my practice is in New York City, and a lot of the times I'll encourage people to meditate on the subway on their way into work. It doesn't have to be this like perfect, quiet setting. The best place to, to meditate is the place that you're going to meditate. So, really thinking about like what seems realistic to you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some research that if we can link it in with other parts of our routine that are already, you know, ready. Uh, in practice, that can help us make it a more regular habit. So, you know, if you say, okay, every morning I wake up, I brush my teeth, I take a shower, and then I um, get dressed and watch 
the news for five minutes. You know, if you can try to say, okay, now I'm going to wake up, brush my teeth, meditate for five minutes, take a shower, get dressed and watch, you know, fit it into that uh, already existing sequence of events. Sometimes it can be easier to bring in that new habit. In the notes for this episode, I've linked to a five-minute guided meditation from Alexis as a supplement that she's generously created for this book. I highly recommend checking that out on my site, which is www.nadiafelsch.com forward slash podcast. I think it's also important here to mention informal mindfulness as presentness. It's something I talk about with my clients to continue this brain training and hardwire the practice, so to speak. So rather than, or in addition to sitting and meditating, we're simply bringing our attention to the presentness of our experience in daily life for a moment, a moment here, a moment there. The temperature of the shower water running on your hand before you hop in. That's mindfulness, being present and being aware. How the carpet feels under your feet what the brush in your hand feels like, maybe the wind on your face as you walk. And we can apply mindfulness as a practice in general to eating. In simply being present and connected, you can consider this mindful eating if you like. There's no particular outcome or goal here. We are just paying attention. You know, again, just how mindfulness is about observing the mind and being present in the current moment, mindful eating or bringing mindfulness to our um, eating experiences is also just about being present and observing. So there's no right or wrong way to eat mindfully. Again, I think people get lost in this idea that mindful eating means eating, you know, at this beautiful place setting and having this like ideal looking meal and having it be completely quiet or with soothing music or whatever. And we can eat mindfully in any situation, even, you know, standing up eating on the go as we're rushing to our car, running late for work or something. It's just simply about bringing our awareness to that experience. Experience. So, you know, to me, mindful eating is really about um, focusing in on both our eating experiences. So using all of our senses to just try to, you know, um, take in as much as possible around like the taste of the food, the appearance of food, um, smelling the food, using our hands, you know, we can get playful with it too, like using our hands to explore the texture of the food, all of that stuff. And then also using mindfulness to be more present and aware with our, um, the signals that our body is sending us. So noticing our hunger, our fullness, what, what we have cravings for, what kinds of foods we enjoy, how different foods impact our body in different ways. Um, So it's really all of that. I think oftentimes mindful eating gets watered down to just like eating without the television on. And it's about so much more than that. I first realized that I struggled deeply with self-compassion only a few years ago. Again, insights from my own therapy. Initially, I've got to be honest, it felt like an entirely new language. And truthfully, it felt weak. It felt lazy, it felt inefficient, slow, like a cop-out, you know, no pain, no gain. And if this is your feeling, if this is your perspective on self-compassion, this is really normal. The idea being that self-kindness is equated with not achieving what we want. You know, it won't get us where we want to go. Nothing will change if we're gentle. So we develop so easily, it seems, an incredibly tough and reprimanding internal voice And when we're talking about food and body, 
this is so much louder. You know, you eat more food than feels good for your body and you say, see, you're a pig. You don't have any self-control. You know, maybe your genes don't zip up and you say to yourself, your body is disgusting and a failure. We speak to ourselves in ways that we likely would never speak to anyone else. Diet culture teaches us to blame and criticize ourselves always. And yet this tends to drive more of the behavior that we wish to change. In other words, we cannot hate ourselves happy. And I invite you to consider now, how is the narrative that you have working out for you? Instead, self-compassion, in Alexis's words, is the process of approaching yourself with a fundamental stance of kindness and finding ways to care for and comfort yourself in times of difficulty and suffering. I spoke to her about how this self-kindness supports positive behavior change. I think that we have really been misled into believing that the way to change ourselves is to be hard on ourselves. And like somehow we've come to believe that if we, you know, talk really meanly to ourselves and, you know, just like kind of bully ourselves, that will somehow lead us to change. And that, you know, the opposite, that if we are kind to ourselves, that's like we've given up, we'll let ourselves go. And it's completely the opposite. So um, sometimes it can be useful to think about an example outside of ourselves, just because I think we can see things a little more clearly when it's not about us. And if we looked at, for example, a child and we took a child and, um, screamed at the child all the time. And every time the child made a mistake, we were incredibly critical and just cruel to the child that, you know, kids don't do well with that. And I, you know, most, most people can see that, that, you know, children do best when they feel loved, when they feel supported, they feel that, you know, we see them as good and then they want to, you know, be, be their best selves. Um, whereas when children are emotionally abused or, um, consistently criticized, neglected, they, they become traumatized and, you know, that's not where change occurs. So the same thing applies to ourselves when we are really hard on ourselves. We, we get, um, stuck where it's very hard to make changes because all we can see is that self-criticism, shame, um, shame makes us want to kind of run and hide and just not engage in our life at all. And when we can shift that and start to change, even just like the internal dialogue in our mind, and instead of being critical of ourselves, start to shift it towards a, um, stance of compassion towards ourselves. Um, It's a huge perspective shift. And, you know, that's really with ourselves as well as, you know, thinking about a child, like that's where change happens. It's where we feel loved, we feel supported by by ourselves, we can do this to ourselves, you know, and um, we, you know, it opens up space to with curiosity, be able to look at what's going on in our life and um, from a place of kindness grow rather than, you know, from a place of punishment. So where do we begin starting to increase our self-compassion? And how does mindfulness factor in here? Again, I think that one of the reasons that I teach mindfulness first in the book and and with my clients as well is because I think I really do think that sets the stage. So we have to be able to hear the the internal dialogue, hear the thoughts that are going on in our mind, the things that we're telling ourselves to be able to change it. And I think when we're able to catch ourselves in that moment and say, 
wow, I'm being really hard on myself right now. Or, you know, like, is that something I would ever say to a friend or someone that I care about? And we're able to start to observe that person can feel really uncomfortable because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm being so mean to myself and I'm treating myself terribly. And, you know, sometimes that can lead to like another round of judgment. Sometimes people get stuck in like, oh, I'm not supposed to be mean to myself. Why am I being so self-critical again? <laughs> no, 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 that's not, that's not where to go with that. But um, when we can observe it with a sense of curiosity, we're able to say, okay, this is happening. I'm stuck in a cycle of self criticism. How can I respond differently to myself? Is there anything, you know, kind or compassionate that I can say to myself? It's a very intentional shift because especially for those of us who spent most of our lives being really hurt on ourselves, um, you know, that self-compassion doesn't come naturally. So it, it, it feels forced in, in the beginning. And it really is this intentional choice of saying, I'm being self-critical. How can I be kinder to myself right now? Um, but through practice, again, we think about the, you know, uh, marble going down that um, pile of sand. Through practice, that route of self-compassion becomes more well-worn and becomes you know, the natural thing over mm -hmm. time, if we stick with it. Um, Self-compassion med meditations can be really powerful too. Um, so, you know, that's like a specific type of mindfulness that we can practice that fosters mm -hmm. compassion for ourselves and compassion for other people. I mean, that inner dialogue, it sounds different and the same for so many people. But even when we're just kind of beating ourselves up about something that we've eaten, if we say, you know, again, for people more stuck in the diet mentality, and there might be thoughts of, oh, I ate something quote unquote bad, um, you know, and then that can really send people down the shame spiral in terms of, I, you know, shouldn't have eaten that. What's wrong with me? How could I have gotten off track again? And we see how that line of thinking can really lead us towards thoughts about restriction. You know, I was bad. I should get back on track again tomorrow. And it perpetuates the whole diet cycle. So if we can, you know, even just very simply, you know, when we're in those moments of being critical about, for example, what we've eaten or maybe even what our body looks like, to be able to just say, you know, you know, kind of that pause and can I respond with compassion? So maybe instead of, um, I can't believe I, you know, had a binge, what's wrong with me, I'm so disgusting or whatever the thought, you know, those thoughts are for each unique person to be able to say, wow, I was having a really hard time right then. And I used food to cope and how, you know, resilient that I was able to find a way to get myself through that. And, you know, maybe I have like a bellyache now and that doesn't feel so good, but what can I do to try to tend to myself? Like with mm -hmm. love the way that we might care again for like a friend or a child who ate too much and feels sick. We usually don't berate them. We'd say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, you feel sick. Can I rub your tummy a little bit? Or do you want to lay down and uh, have some hot tea? or whatever we think might be soothing in that moment. It's interesting that sometimes initially we, we maybe can only relate this to people we love and how we would care for them. 
but you know it's harder to turn that in which is sad and hopeful at the same time I guess <laughs> it really is I think so many of us are more comfortable being kind and showing compassion to other people and it, it actually you know comes rather naturally to be kind and compassionate to others but when it comes to ourselves it's like we somehow feel that we're not deserving of that same basic human respect and dignity that we so you know generously give to others so bringing together these skills of mindfulness and self-compassion, just like I said at the beginning of this episode, is a superpower when it comes to breaking free from dieting. So if we take hunger and fullness signals, for example, these can be really tricky to connect with, especially at the beginning of our intuitive eating journey. I've had clients tell me that it feels frustrating to not know, to not know that you can trust them. So enter mindfulness where we are now more present and we're more aware of body signals, even the really quiet ones. And hello, self-compassion, letting us know that it's okay to be wherever we are, that we're showing up, that we're doing well. And if we missed that fullness cue, it's okay. Our clever body can handle it. And we've now learned more information about ourselves to move forward with. We get to notice that when we eat lunch earlier than the so-called lunchtime that we used to do it at, actually seems to serve us better. We now get to notice all of these little things. It's such a different story than missing out on these signals altogether, maybe feeling overwhelmed, and then going into that self-critic. Mindfulness and self-compassion also enter the scene to help us figure out what foods we like and why. It's a crucial part of eating satisfying and nourishing foods. You know, we're not paying so much attention anymore to the noise of diet culture telling us this food is bad, don't eat it. And instead, we're paying really close attention to what it is like to eat, what it's like in the body. We're giving ourselves the kindness to explore and discover. Discovering things like, how do I feel afterwards of eating a certain meal? What is it about that meal that satisfies me? What gives me enough energy? What makes me gassy? What amount of this food seems to best serve me most of the time? And when in the day serves me well to eat it? You know, I love coffee, really love coffee. And I also know that it doesn't work very well for me past about midday. But I also have the self-compassion to know flexibility is important and that I always am the expert of me. These skills let our body be our guide, just like they always have been. And when it comes to emotional eating, that is eating in order to cope with difficult emotions, these skills can again come into play. We're able to see the gift that food provides us in these times and be grateful for it. And we also get to lose the judgment over doing it in the first place. You know, if we want to, we can work with it. We can move through it. Alexis describes the three-step process that she uses with clients working through their emotional eating. Listen out for the skills of mindfulness and self-compassion here, as she shares. First of all, you know, I want to emphasize that emotional eating is a completely normal and healthy part of eating, you know, being a human that eats. Um, I think that there's a lot of demonization that goes on around emotional eating and this idea that mindful eating or healing your relationship with food somehow means that like, you know, we only eat when we're hungry and we stop when we've reached this perfect level of satiation and, you know, food is fuel and that all mentality. And, um, 
I think that using food to cope with uncomfortable feelings or to celebrate, you know, moments of excitement and joy is completely, you know, normal. So I just want to start from that premise. But thank you. Um, but I know, I also know that a lot of people, um, you know, when we're kind of habitually turning to food to meet our emotional needs, um, sometimes it doesn't feel good because as wonderful as food is, it's not that kind of one size fits all for everything. So sometimes food is the best way to care for our emotional needs. And other times there's something else that we need. So, you know, the three step process that I encourage or, you know, suggests put forth in the book is the idea that uh, when we are, um, you know, when we're eating, we can kind of pause and try to check in with ourselves to try to assess, like, are we hungry? Or is there, you know, something emotional going on here? And and again, not mutually exclusive at all. Lots of times we're hungry, and there's emotions going on. So mindfulness, um, might, might yeah. I yes, suggest? Okay, great. <laughs> yes, mindfulness. So, you know, again, like, th- through this practice, this is one of, you know, something that comes at one of the later chapters in the book, I think it's the second to last chapter. So by this point, I'm hoping that people have already started that mindfulness practice um, that they've learned, I think, in chapter three of the book Mm -hmm. and are getting into more habitual patterns of like, you know, hearing recognizing hunger and, you know, that that's starting to come a little bit easier to folks. But when we can start to recognize, okay, you know, I'm not hungry right now. I have the urge to eat because I'm, um, you know, feeling whatever. So the first step would be kind of recognizing, you know, what's going on in the moment. And then, um, labeling what's happening. So if there's, if you're able to identify any emotion that's going on, um, I'm feeling sad right now. I'm feeling excited. I'm whatever. And then, you know, finding the best way to move forward with compassion. So Mm -hmm. what is the best way to care for myself in this moment? Is it food, you know, always a valid, totally valid option. Is it wanting to, you know, call a friend because I'm feeling lonely or I'm feeling sad. I want to talk something out. Is it um, maybe finding something to do that feels really pleasurable? You know, again, this could be food. It could be um, something else, but just, you know, maybe just needing a moment to have joy and do something fun. And oftentimes it's really just, you know, this is the kind of unsexy part of being a therapist, but sometimes just just about sitting with those feelings. It's about trying to tolerate, allowing space to just feel sad and kind of ride that out. Um, But the idea is to kind of you know, observe what's going on, label it, and then make informed choices of how you want to move forward with self-compassion. A final note on practicing the skills of mindfulness and self-compassion straight from Alexis and from myself. Alexis in her book says, and I quote, Serena Williams isn't at the US Open thinking about her grip on her racket. Her body knows what to do. Think of these practices as those early tennis lessons and gradually these practices fade away as things feel more intuitive and instinctive. So when teaching the skills of intuitive eating to new clients, I often ask them about their first experiences driving, remembering with them how they probably felt a little out of their depth and possibly very hypervigilant all around, you know, checking mirrors all the time, feeling very forced and rehearsed. 
But over time, checking their blind spots became automatic and they no longer need to have that conscious reminder because driving now feels more intuitive. And this is the case for all of us learning new skills. There's a number of incredible resources and links for this episode, including how to find Alexis and her work. All of it can be found on my website, which is www.nadiafelsch.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for joining me. See you next time. If you'd like to get in touch with me, learn about my current group program offerings and client availability, the best way to do that is via my website, www.nadiafelsch.com. You'll also find my Facebook group, Food and Body Freedom, and on Instagram and TikTok, my handle is at Nadia Felsch.